All right, we are accepting calls this hour from time travelers only. If you have traveled in time or you are presently a traveler to this time, then we want to hear from you. Otherwise, the phone lines are closed, but for that group, they are certainly open. Uh, with that in mind, uh, top of the morning to you on the wild card line. You are on the air. Hello. Hello. What is going on? It is the Infinite Fringe. Hope everybody's doing well right here on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you can find a podcast. My name is Billy Ray Valentine. Billy the Kid. Coming to you live from the Bronx, New York City. Actually, it's a tape. But uh, you guys know the deal. You guys understand. I have a good friend here. I say that a lot. But still, um, I, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of people in the community. Thank the Lord. But, but this guy, you know, I actually met this guy once. You know, we did a, we did a conference together. We've, he's been on the fringe so many times, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I can count anymore. But uh, every time he comes on, it is a, a pleasure and an honor to introduce to you the mighty Mark Devlin, ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Mark Devlin. How are you, sir? Welcome back to the Infinite Fringe. Oh, thank you, brother. Always good to be back and connect with you. And what you were saying there about friends, since I got involved in this truthing lark, I have made so many incredibly supportive friends it's right. just unbelievable i mean prior to doing all this i was active as a dj and i had a few friends and acquaintances a lot of these people i just referred to as affiliates rather than actual friends and in the dj business you get a lot of shady shysty kind of characters it's just that sort of business but honestly since crossing the fence into what i'm doing now the amount of friends I have, you know, good friends, good, solid, reliable friends is in the hundreds. And then, you know, many more thousands of supporters out there. So it's just amazing. When you take a walk on the wild side in this community, you meet some incredibly uh, supportive people. You just make right. such good connections. And it's probably the same for you. I'm sure you feel the same way. Yeah. No. Well, you know, for a long time, I was uh, like, what the hell am I doing here? You know, like... <laughs> What what's going on? You know, like, am I doing the right thing here? Um, you know, but um, recently, it's uh, and 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 but even before that, I had met uh, great people. I met you. I met you know you know so many people that I consider friends now. Um, you know, because of this, otherwise I wouldn't have met any of you. But uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, the community has shown a lot of love to a lot of people, and I'm just like, all right, I get it now. I'm I'm right. I'm happy about this. It makes sense to me. And, and, uh, there's, there's a support system. It's almost like a family, you know? So mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm proud to be a part of it in particular after what went down with, with Kev Baker, rest, rest in peace. And, and, uh, so many people came together. It's just, it's amazing. It was amazing to me to see how many people, including you, Mark, thank you so much. Um, how many no people problem. came together to, uh, to, you know, to lend a hand to, to one of our, our fallen, you know, to, to one of us. You know, and, right. and and it was it was incredible. It, it felt it felt really good, and it, it feels very good to be a part of this community at this point in time. How do I sound to you, Mark? How, how's the how's the mic? You're sounding crystal clear, brother. Fantastic studio so, quality. 
That's that's great. That's what I wanted to hear. I, I should have told you this off the air, but I just thought of it. So um, <laughs> may as well get it in now before um, before we go a whole show and I sound like crap and I can't do the show. So no, anyway, good, you are doing your thing, right? You are you are always doing your thing. Um, your audience has exploded, as we mentioned before in previous shows, but it, it remains the same. And and you finally got around to writing that other book, you know, that that. You know, you're famous for a few of them, but that, you know, you you wrote the part three. Tell us about it. Yeah. So this completes the trilogy of my Musical Truth books, which began back in early 2016. That's when I published volume one. And that was based on five years worth of research at the time. I wrote it in 2014 and 2015. And uh, it was very satisfying to get that book out. Then a couple of years later, volume two followed because there was so much more to say that I couldn't get into that first book. Then I wrote my novel, The Cause and the Cure, an allegorical work of fiction. That was a, a greatly fulfilling experience to get that out. It was just an itch I needed to scratch. I wanted to try my hand at fiction. I was very happy with how it turned out. Reception's been pretty good as well. That came out in late 2019. Can you think of anything else that happened in late 2019? Can't think of the thing. Car worlds. <laughs> this was just after that conference that you put on in New York. That was October 2019, right? Where you had Crow and Jason for Shoot the Moon NYC, and a few other speakers. And I was very happy to be a part of that. And then just a few weeks after that, I dropped the cause and the cure. And my intention was to spend 2020 doing a speaking tour, presenting aspects of that book and doing a few book signings, a few book festivals. Didn't quite work out that way. Hmm. Had to redraw my plans for that particular year. And for the rest of 2020, like anyone else out there, I was just kind of treading water and going from day to day, taking one day at a time because our world had all been rocked. The rug had been pulled out from all of us without any warning. And we all had to kind of reassess ourselves and refocus on what we were doing. So 2020 was kind of wiped out. And I spent a lot of time commenting on what was going on in the world. As you mentioned in the intro there, that caused my YouTube subscriber base to go from 9,000. I'd built up 9,000 subscribers from 2008 to March 2020. That's how long it took to get to 9K. Wow. And then within a few weeks, maybe two to three weeks, my subscriber base shot up to in excess of 50,000. And I'm now Incredible. on about 61,000. As a direct result of me providing commentary on what was going on and the shared experiences that we were all going through. In particular, my car rant. You know, when I locked myself in my car in April 2020 and I just went into righteous indignation about the absurdity of this Monty Python surreal sketch in which we found ourselves all unwittingly living. I don't remember agreeing to it, Billy. I don't remember signing that particular contract, but, you know, me neither. I, I found myself in it anyway. Right. And so this got me a whole new audience who'd never discovered my work before. And a lot of them, had been drawn to my output as a result of that car rent. And I was getting very kind, supportive emails from people every day saying, 
oh, you're art articulating everything that's on our minds and you, you just put it so well and you explain how we're feeling about this. And it's so good to know that we're not alone because I felt like I was going crazy and there was nobody I could talk to about this, which was great mm. to hear. And then people discovered that I wasn't some Johnny come lately that had just started making videos off the back of COVID. Like so uh, many, right? Yeah, exactly. There's been a few Johnny come lately's, but I've actually been around for 10 years. Yeah. They're like, damn, this guy's written books. Damn, he's got like 200 conference presentations on YouTube. And because people were discovering my work anew, it sort of brought a refreshed, a refreshed interest in my music-based output. And it had always been my intention to complete this trilogy of books. I had wanted to knuckle down to it in 2020, but I was just so distracted with everything and you know, right. going through personal challenges like anyone, anyone else. And then in January 2021, I said to myself, okay, no further distractions, no further excuses. I've just got to knuckle down and get this written. So I began writing in January. I finished in November. And the intention was to get the book out before the end of 2021, just before Christmas. And I achieved that. So it's been out a few weeks. And this one is slightly different to the others. It does complete the trilogy. And I think if you read the books in sequential order, you'll get a lot out of the series. This one's slightly different in that a lot of the content is not music-based, despite the title. I just felt the need and the responsibility to share some of the research that I'd been doing into the COVID narrative, which is, after all, the greatest psyop that has ever been perpetrated on humanity yeah and think of the competition so i wanted to spend some time breaking down the entire narrative and showing how each and every aspect of it is completely fraudulent mm. the tests the vaccines the data the case figures every aspect and the intention there was that my regular readership most of them would know all this stuff anyway because they'd have researched it for, for themselves but the intention was to give them something that they could then pass on to a friend or a family member or a colleague right. someone in their private circle who has yet to wake up to these harsh truths and i think everything that anyone could ever need to show how this is a monumental scam is between the covers of that book Having said that, there is a lot of music-based content in there also. In the main chapters, I'm examining the reaction of household name musicians that we've all heard of to what's been going on. Right. For the most part, you know, 99% of famous names have been completely and utterly compliant and just propping up the official narrative, the official version of everything. There have been very few exceptions. I do an honourable roll call of those few names that have been putting up some resistance. Not many of them, but they're in the main chapters. Then between the main chapters, I've got a new feature and it's called Sound Bites. And these are little stories or what I refer to in my public presentations now as vignettes that kind of reinforce points that I've made in the previous books. So it's all kinds of familiar names that we all know, and it's looking into aspects of their family backgrounds, 
symbolism contained in their artwork, suggestions of the presence of trauma-based mind control, these kind of things. Many, many stories. I've got four chapters of sound bites. And that was very enjoyable to put together in spite of the dark and devastating nature of much of the content, but I'm sure people who read my books are used to that by now. And so that's what you've got. You've got these main chapters, which are very much topical and of these times, punctuated by sound bites. And I think this book will stand as a very useful historical record of what it was like to live through the COVID years in the years and decades to come when it's looked back upon. That's my hope anyway. Well, damn, you know, um, I, I can't wait to dig in and and, and read uh, what it is you put down, you know, and uh, um, I, I hope you put it down in a in a in a palatable way. Right. Like, I mean, I, that was your goal. So I'm, I'm pretty sure you did, um, it, you know, so people can read and, and, and digest and, uh, and and able to make their own, uh, you know, assessments and, and uh, go ahead and do their own research based on that also. You know, um, now, as far as the musicians. You know that, and we can get into 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 COVID all you want. So make sure you sprinkle that in, and we can talk about it. Um, but right now, I want to ask you about the musicians that that are are holding up the narrative, right? And in, in your opinion, uh, why do you think they're doing it, right? Um, so you mentioned a few that um, aren't going along with the game. Right. Oh, I mean, well, yeah. oh, you mentioned that you 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 noted a few that aren't going along with the game. Who who are some of these people? Well, the most obvious name is probably Van Morrison, mm. veteran blues musician. Right. He's been very vocal about the effects of the government's lockdowns on the live music industry. Right. Obviously, that's his bread and butter. I mean, he's 75 or 76 or something like that now, but he's still performing. Mm. And hats off to him for just coming out and saying something that goes against the official narrative. You know, he's talking about the inability for musicians to have been making a living out of their art for the past couple of years. They're doing no harm by putting that art into the world, so they deserve to be able to make a living from it. And, you know, he's been questioning why these measures have been needed. So fair play. Eric Clapton is a kind of halfway name, so he's not a bona fide truther that's completely come down on our side. But he has had some comments to make about the vaccines, and he's questioned the safety of them after he himself took his first jab Mm. and suffered some pretty devastating effects. Damn, God bless. Wow, I was not aware. Yeah, specifically, he was talking about how he couldn't move his hands for a time. And he was worried that he'd never be able to play guitar again. And again, he's 76 or something like that, but he's still performing or would like to. That that must be some type of hell, right? For, for an Eric Clapton, not to be able to move his hands and play his guitar, right? Like that's, that's like a second nature. It's like an extension of his body. Imagine him not being able to play that guitar. Wow. Go ahead. I mean, he's revered as one of the all time guitar greats. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he jumped on a couple of tracks with Van Morrison and they did some songs together to express their bemusement at what was going on. Uh, So who else have we got? We've got the Gallagher brothers. Now, this is very confusing out of Oasis, Noel and Liam Gallagher, because we've been getting mixed messages from these two. So to start with, Noel Gallagher made some social media comments about the masks, the goon muzzles. and. 
he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm not wearing a fucking mask. He said he was on a train <laughs> and um, he was the only one not wearing a mask and he was getting challenged about it. And he was like, it's my choice whether I wear a mask or not. You know, I'm not doing any harm to anyone else. So you think, oh, great. You know, Noel's on our side. He can see it. And Liam Gallagher made some comments about gigs being shut down. You know, he yeah. questioned why concerts couldn't go ahead. And he stood in solidarity with a bunch of students that were protesting about this. So you think, oh, great, Liam's on our side as well. But then a little bit further down the line, you see a post from Noel where he's pictured getting his COVID vaccine. <laughs> and he says, uh, yeah, I took the jab because my doctor said I should, you know. Yeah. Think, Are you not capable of doing independent research for yourself? Surely you've been able to establish that these things aren't safe. They've not gone through the usual testing methods they've been causing untold numbers of adverse reactions and deaths why are you not able to research this for yourself so i've never actually trusted the gallaghers myself i've been very suspicious of their motives and of how oasis came about in the first place so you've got a few confusing aspects to the narrative like that going on Another really hold, hold on hold on mark hold on let me let me, let me hold you right there i want to know i love oasis i've seen oasis live about i don't know five times here in the states big fan Right. Um, of, of the Gallagher brothers. I saw Noel by himself a, a few times. And Noel is the dude. Yeah, he's an asshole. Everybody knows that. But uh, y you are um, questioning why they came together. Give me something on that. You want me to put you up on some Oasis game? Put me up on some, some Oasis game, please. Well, I mean, a lot of it is personal suspicions that I have based on what I've seen. Because That's fine. I know a thing or two about a thing or two, and I've seen a thing or two in my time researching this business. So it's just the speed with which Oasis came about and were unleashed on the scene. They had very sudden success. They were pitched against Blur back in the mid-90s as part of this yeah. Britpop revolution. Right. And these two groups were put out there as supposed rivals. But this is a dialectic, and we've seen this so many times through the music business most notably with the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones, when it turns out that both of them, uh, you know, probably came from the same sources. <laughs> and uh, there was a lot of cross-fertilization between uh, personnel of those two groups. They were both... Uh, they both had a publicist by the name of Andrew Luke Oldham. He worked mm. with both groups. There was also the attorney, Alan Klein, that worked on the financial affairs of both groups. And also they were friends. You know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones used to party together. So they weren't right. really rivals. And I think with Blur and Oasis, it was an updated version of that dialectic for those times, for the mid-90s. My belief is the whole Britpop thing was invented as a way of making Tony Blair and his incoming Labour Party at the time, fashionable and palatable to young people, because it was mm. all very much tied in with that 1997 general election. On the 1st of May, by the way, that date of extreme occult significance, Valpurgis, right. Act and Beltane, but I'm sure that's just a coincidence. So <laughs> Tony Blair at the time was being presented as, as this cool dude. You know, he wasn't some dusty old dry old politician like John Major. No, he was a cool, dynamic young guy. And, you know, he played a bit of guitar. He was in a band himself, smoked a bit of weed back in the day, you know, and he's hanging out with Noel Gallagher at a party at number 10, champagne mm. and canapes. And a regular Bill position. Clinton, this guy. Exactly. Yeah. It's the same dynamic that they right. tried with Bill Clinton. Mm. So my suspicion is that Blur and Oasis were kind of manufactured groups that were put out there 
to push agendas because I've seen this happen so much over the decades. And also Oasis was signed to Creation Records, the proprietor of which is Alan McGee, who is a stated occultist. Mm. You know, he's into the works of Alistair Crowley. He's into theosophy and chaos magic. And Alistair Crowley pops up so much in the backstory of the controlled music industry. And wherever you see his name, my advice would be, be very suspicious because dark occultism is going on in the background. And a lot of this music that's put out there, it turns out, is casting spells on the general public, on the listening audience. There are many methods that have been utilized over the years to achieve this. So whenever I hear about record label proprietors who are into the works of Aleister Crowley, uh, my ears start to prick up and I think, here we go again. So those are my suspicions with Oasis. But anyway, you know, we were talking about the Gallaghers and I I don't really trust them. And we got some very mixed messages from them. One name in the COVID narrative that's been very consistent in terms of exposing the fraud is Ian Brown, former lead singer of the Stone Roses, part of that Manchester revolution that came about at the end of the 80s. Again, that was a group that was put out there alongside the Happy Mondays as part of this whole movement where indie music had been linked together with acid house culture that was happening Mm. at the time. And it was being packaged for these different demographics. But Ian Brown, for over 20 years now, actually, has been speaking his truth. And he's been putting out some very unpopular messages. He's criticised governments for their warmongering, for their corruption. He's criticised, you know, different aspects of how society is so unjust and so unfair. And so when the whole COVID thing came along, he was uh, already primed to be a very prominent voice in opposing what was being done to us. And he has. He's been going in on his social media pretty much every day. I follow him on on Twitter Mm -hmm. and he's had a whole lot to say. And he's been savaged because of it. I've noticed that any household name that sticks their head above the parapet and expresses any opinion which differs in any way to the official narrative gets set upon by a pack of wolves, metaphorically speaking. And out come the virtue signalers and how can you say that? People are dying and all these tactics that they use. But I'm giving props to Ian Brown. And a lot of people say to me, come on, Mark, you've researched these musicians. Van Morrison is a sir. Eric Clapton is a CBE. And and do you really think these people would be allowed to put out these kind of messages Mm. like Ian Brown does without being shut down? My response to that is I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt until some kind of proof comes across my radar to show me that I'm wrong to do that. Right. Because by the law of averages in an industry populated by so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of famous names, it's got to be the case that a few of them have got something to say about this. They can't all be silent. I know the vast majority have been, probably 99%, but there's got to be a few that would grow a conscience and a backbone and a pair of balls to come out and uh, say what needs to be said. And so there have been a few. And there are a few kind of lesser known names that have come through as well. Some very unexpected ones. Right said Fred. Are you Mm. familiar with these dudes? Of course. 
I'm okay. too sexy for my shirt. Exactly. And all right. that good stuff. Deeply pithy <laughs> and uh, don't talk, just kiss, all that all that stuff. I remember that song too. <laughs> it's been so oh, long. I remember that. I, I heard them on your show, actually. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, these guys, it's two brothers, Richard and Fred Fairbrass. And they were putting out novelty dance records in the 90s, basically, pop stuff. And, you know, I never really went for them. Wasn't my kind of thing. But again, hats off. Respect to these guys. They've been attending many of the freedom rallies in London. And that got picked up by the mainstream press. And they were like, oh, right, said Fred, are, are so stupid. They're anti-vaxxers and they're COVID deniers. All these trigger phrases that are getting used to demonize those who apply critical thought to a situation, you know, to try and get the mainstream uh, normies to turn against them. And so, right, said Fred got set upon in the same way that Ian Brown did, but fair play to him, you know. Then you've got Danny Rampling, the DJ, who's uh, very well known on the dance music scene. He's considered one of the pioneers of acid house culture. And he's been saying all the right things, putting out some very powerful messages. Danny's a real activist. You know, he gets out there to all these protest events, these rallies. I see him all the time in London. Uh, we attend many of the same events. And where are his peers? This is a question that I have. You know, would you not think that in an industry like the DJ scene, which is supposed to be a bit edgy and cool and it's perceived as being anti-establishment and very anti-conservative values, and yet Danny Rampling pretty much stands alone in that whole community in having come out and said anything. I have to give props to Slipmat as well, of Slipmat and Lime. He's another name who has said, you know, the right things. But that's about it. Where are the others? And another question I've got is, where are all the punk rockers? Isn't Taking the vaccine, sir. That's where, that's where they are. Well, they are. <laughs> but isn't punk supposed to be anti-establishment? Sticking it to the man, you know, edgy, mm -hmm. dangerous, gritty. That's the way it was always presented. Right. And yet, unless I've missed it, there's not been a whole lot from Johnny Rotten or members of The Clash or Paul Weller or... Any of these groups, the Damned, the Stranglers, you know, any of these groups from that scene. And there's not been a whole lot from the heavy metal guys, again, considered a bit edgy and dangerous. Where are they? Where are those voices? There's not been a whole lot from the drum and bass scene. There's not been a whole lot from the hip hop scene. Would you not think that somebody like Professor Griff out of, um, sorry, not Griff, uh, Chuck D out of All Public right. Enemy? would have had something to say. But unless I've missed it, he's been bashing Donald Trump a lot, but he's not had much else to say about what's been happening. Right. Buster Rhymes has said a thing or two, you know, about masks. So respect to him for that. But where are all these other names? And so this is the point I'm making in the book, that you can know that the entire corporate music industry is utterly controlled and all these musicians and household names, all these people that have enjoyed fame and fortune at the hands of this industry's controllers, you can know that they're kept on an incredibly short leash and that they are muzzled and muted whenever there are important things that might be said, but never are. So do, do you think they're muzzled, right? Um, 
in in a very literal way like uh, their handlers are like no you can't say this or or is it more like this is going to affect my bottom line if i say something uh it's it's going to affect my money my income it's going to f- affect my performances and all this other stuff so i'm not going to say anything do you think it's more that way how do you how, how do you think this is uh played out i think it's a bit of both mm-hmm. i think a lot of these musicians would be inclined to self-censor because they would know that vast swathes of their fan base would turn against them if they came out with a controversial, provocative message. And we've seen examples of how a fan base will turn on its hero through some of the comments that Van Morrison has got and Ian Brown as well. You look at some of their social media posts and their own fans are turning on them. They're saying things like, come on, Van, you know, you're a great musician. Nobody's denying this, but just stick to playing the guitar and singing songs. I you know, you don't know what you're talking that. about when it comes to yeah. vaccines. You're not a epidemiologist, a bloody doctor. You know, you don't know about these things. Uh, I used to like you, but I'm, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. So they would know this. But then also, I think in the back of so many of these people's minds will be what might happen to them if they do cross that line and make controversial comments. Right. You know, we can think back to some of the names that have, specifically those that have spoken out against their record companies and the industry that spawned them. Names like Michael Jackson, Prince, right. Right. George Michael. Does anything link those guys? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> they all turned up dead in suspicious circumstances in their right. 50s. Right. Right. After making comments uh, questioning the fairness of the industry in which they worked right okay Mm. so in the back of many of these other musicians minds will be damn i don't want to end up like prince right or michael or george and uh that is going to be a very powerful motivational factor in keeping these musicians silent but again i would like to think that there would be a few whose consciences would bother them so much that they would think you know what? To hell with the consequences. I've had a good life. I've had a long career. I've enjoyed all the trappings of fame and fortune. But what is happening in the world right now is not right. Right. We've got genocide. We've got crimes against humanity. We've got the traumatizing of an entire generation of young people. Uh, I can't just stand by and say nothing. You know, I've got fame. I've got a platform. I need to speak out and, and add my voice to this. And sadly, we've just not seen that happening. I would right. like to think that, you know, it's part of human nature to want to do the right thing. And I think it's testament to the true nature of the music industry and the dark occultists that run it that very, very few have felt compelled to stand in right action in that way. Right. No, um, it's, it's uh, you know, especially nowadays like it's i mean all the punk rockers are old right punk uh punk rock is dead uh for, for all intents and purposes in the mainstream right and uh hip-hop is uh i guess some form of it is still alive like i mean it's, it's whatever this is that that they're calling hip-hop nowadays but, and, and no, nobody's coming out and, and and talking about anything and and i think in large part even if if they were they'd be suppressed, right? You, you, there's only a certain narrative that's allowed to creep through, 
you know, and and you see it now with uh, go go do a Google search on some of this stuff. You'll see what you find. You know, like go try to find an artist that's going to relate to it that hasn't been. Look at B.O.B. B.O.B. was on top of the world. Started talking about flat earth. Done. Over. Shut down. <laughs> Gone. Like, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so there is that aspect to it. And, and um, I think a lot of musicians are afraid. Um, l- let's see if what we need is, is the youth. We need the youth and we need uh, super famous people to come out and, and start doing this. Some NBA players have done it. I don't understand when people say, um, oh, you're a basketball player. So you shouldn't, you don't, you know, why are you talking about this? Or Van Morrison, you're, you're you know, you're a, you know, you're, you're a musician. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be allowed to talk about this why why are you talking about viruses like well i'm just a friggin- allowed to have a what's up buddy i'm just a friggin dj so i right, shouldn't right. talk about Mark, this either. you shouldn't you shouldn't talk about it it's like uh, i'm you're a person with opinions an informed one at that you know so uh, why shouldn't you use your platform to get your opinion across well, it's, it's, now, it's not just that it's hmm. it's having done research that, that's right. what it is and anyone can do research anyone with uh, a mind to think and an internet connection can do the research. And this is a point I often make about Danny Rampling standing alone in the DJ community. Now, all Danny's done is researched these topics for himself. He's thought, you know, I'm not just going to take what the BBC Evening News is telling me. I'm going to look into these matters and, and see what comes up. And so he's gone wherever his research has taken him, and he's come to some different conclusions about what's really going on here. And anyone could have done that. If he can do it, and I can do it, and you can do it, Anyone can do it. Right. So if they're not, they're either doing it because they're so deeply entrenched in the mind control and the propaganda that they actually believe all these lies, or they're deliberately avoiding doing it for fear of what they might find, or they are doing the research, but they're not being vocal about it for fear of what consequences it might bring. You know, it's got to be one of those dynamics. No, I get it. I get it. I understand 100%. I want to give a big shout out to my boy, Genuine Questions. What's going on? um over in spain uh just before i forget but no you're you're 100 uh right with a lot of this and you know it's 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 a hell of a situation ever since 2020 hit just to see the dynamic of what's been going on you know got kind of some sometimes i'm like i wish it never happened well i always wish it never happened right so th- that way i can continue living my freaking life right and <laughs> and yeah. uh and and you know n- not have to question why some of these like rage against the machine is my favorite band of all time and in order to get into a, a rage concert you have to be fully vaccinated oh my days you couldn't make it up could you right and i'm like good lord man like what, what's going on here you know what's going on and uh, i wish i didn't know sometimes ignorance is bliss it really is i mean not that in reality i do wish i, I i'm happy that i do know and uh, and i would opt for that all the time but um it it gets i don't know it's it's uh uh, it's not the best. I know what you, you mean. You can be discouraged. Yeah. What's up? Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. I know what you mean. You know, right. there are days where I feel I'd rather not know this stuff because then I might actually be able to enjoy life right. <laughs> and, and have fun. Do you remember life, Billy? Do you remember fun? I do, actually. <laughs> but then again, you know, uh, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. And the emphasis is on ignorance. So in order to enjoy bliss and have fun times, you have to live in a state of ignorance, according to that statement. And that's not a good thing. It's not a good it's thing not. for your soul. It's not a good thing for creation to have ignorant people wandering around, people ignorant of truth. Right. Truth is empowering. It is liberating. It's very difficult 
to uh, come to terms with some of these truths, but they are nevertheless truths. And once you start to embrace them, there's no going back. You, you, you can't go back to sleep even if you chose to. So we take on great responsibilities when we discover these truths to communicate them to as many other people as possible. You do a great job with your show and so many others do as well. Uh, and that's what it is. You know, we, we have to still try and have fun when we can, but I would still rather live a meaningful life with a fulfilled soul to go back to source at the end of it than live a life in profanity and ignorance and darkness. Right. You're absolutely right. Um, even though it's 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 the harder road to take. A lot of us have taken it, right? And we want to know. Um, so so we proceed down that road, and um, it goes well for the most part. You know, it's it's not a bad thing. But anyway, Mark, you you, you talked about vignettes. Give me some of those. All right, so we can get into some of this stuff in the sound bites. So at the moment, I'm doing a speaking tour. I didn't know whether I would be able to complete this because nobody's known what was going to happen with regard to further lockdowns and venues being told that they can't open and all this sort of thing. But at the moment, in England, things are actually looking pretty good on that front. I've got many different opinions as to what might be happening to, to cause that. And that's probably something for another show. But there have been factors that have been going on behind the scenes that have created a situation where venues have remained open. And actually, at the moment in England, and I say England because things are much more severe in the other nations of the United Kingdom than they are in England. So in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, there's a lot of harsh restrictions still in place. I just got back from Northern Ireland this weekend. And right now, it's papers, please, at the mm. door when you want to get into a bar or a restaurant. In other words, a licensed premises. But no papers, please, to get into a cafe. Right. So that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> so not only does this virus roll with a calendar, a watch, and a map, so it knows whether you're in Northern Ireland or Southern, it can now tell what you're drinking. So Coffee, no problem. Pint of beer, I'm having you. I'm going in. It's just ridiculous. But in England right now, there's even talk of all COVID restrictions being lifted by the end of January. Wow. Briefly, in a nutshell, I believe this is as a direct result of a crime report having been filed with the Metropolitan Police in London just before Christmas by a group, a consortium containing former police officers, some prominent lawyers, and one or two doctors. They've got a crime reference number, meaning that the police are now duty-bound to investigate the allegations right. of mass murder by the arm spear and uh, allegations of fraud, crimes against humanity, these kind of things, treason. And I think because of this, which appears to be gaining some traction, they're pretty much on the back foot, you know, and they're, they're rolling a lot of this stuff back. So we're now hearing that all restrictions are due to be lifted very soon. And there's even talk of the vaccines being withdrawn over safety concerns. And I think this gives a, a, a brilliant example of what can be achieved 
when people come together and take some action and you know just do what needs to be done how realistic do you think this is well um, the, the the vaccines being rolled back i mean and and you see it you see it in the mainstream and this is what's kind of concerning to me i want to pose this to you because i see it all over the place now it's it's the mainstream feeding the narrative that these vaccines are bad this is where we're getting it from it's it's double speak it's 1984 double speak we get um you know the uh, hey go get the vaccine it's your best protection also um they're killing you you know like, <laughs> go get the vaccine you're going to be fine and you won't die from covid also don't get johnson and johnson because uh it, it's it's getting uh it produces blood clots or or don't get moderna or pfizer because they you know myocarditis and uh, all these people are dropping dead and all these people are having side effects. So please, you know, um, people are getting up and leaving. And now the new narrative here in the States is let's live with COVID where we're not going to be able to get rid of COVID, like which we would have said um, in the beginning of all of this. But let's let's just live with COVID. And they're throwing their mask out. Right. They have a, on Drudge Report. That was the headline. They threw their mask out and and living with COVID you know, for forever and ever and ever and ever, whatever, whatever it is. But the, the narrative seems to be breaking down either by design or or by the people taking action or a combination of both. Uh, I'm not sure. Hmm. But I've, I've read this SPARS document and um, this is what's supposed to happen at the end of the of the scenario. Everything's supposed to fall apart. So I'm thinking I'm like, it's the mainstream feeding this. I hope it happens, Mark. I, I don't want to deal with this crap anymore. And, and if it happens over by you in the UK, then maybe it'll give some people some hope here, you know, and, and maybe we can, you know, rise up and, and, and get rid of this or all of this nonsense that's going on. I'm not overly optimistic about this, um, but I want to be. Give me some hope. What do you think? My optimism has been carrying me through these right. past two years. I've had to be optimistic. But, you know, in all honesty, I am because I'm seeing a lot of good things start to happen now. Fantastic. I'm seeing it from the perspective of living in England, of course. You know, if I was in Scotland or Wales where things are more draconian, I might be seeing things differently. If I was in Australia or New Zealand or Austria or Quebec or Ontario, which have just gone back into lockdown, I hear, in Canada, maybe I'll be, I'd be seeing things differently. But Maybe things are going to happen here in England, which are going to serve as an inspiration to other nations. I don't profess to know exactly what's going to happen. I'm not one to make those kind of predictions because right. I don't know if you've noticed, but 99.99% of <laughs> predictions that anyone has made over the last year have come to nothing. Right. So they don't serve a lot of purpose, really. Uh, We've just got to keep doubling down on our activism and our resistance and our pushback and doing whatever we can to break this narrative down. But I'm seeing some positive signs. You know, I've se I'm seeing some optimistic indicators that things are starting to unravel now. I know skeptics will say, oh, it's all part of the plan. It's all part of the PSYOP. It's being done by design with the complicity of the mainstream media. But right. we will see anyway. I you hope know, you're I, right. I mean, I want this to, to fall apart so bad. Like, well, I, I, I think I even if it's part of a controlled narrative, I will take it and deal with it afterwards and, and <laughs> figure it out afterwards. I'm like, all right. Like, and, and I say that often since 2020 has rolled around, like we have to pick and choose here. Take mm -hmm. what works. 
and we'll figure everything else out later. So even if it's part of a of, of, of an agenda controlled narrative, I, I I don't give a damn. Let's take it and and we'll roll from there. In my I don't know if that's right or wrong. It's just the way I'm feeling right now. But anyway, yeah. go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I would second that. And where I was going with this before I went off at about 500 different tangents, which tends to happen in conversations <laughs> of this nature, is I it's was all talking fantastic, about, though. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, it's free flow. Right. Yeah, where I was going with it was to mention that I'm on a speaking tour right now at various dates around England. I don't have any dates in Wales or Scotland, which I did, but I never get booked to go to those places. So I'm just all over England. I'd like to be going overseas with this as well. We will see how that pans out, but I ain't taking no arm spear to get on a goddamn plane. So <laughs> that may not happen anytime soon. But I'm doing these uh, soundbite presentations where I'm going into these aspects of the book. And so far, all the venues that uh, have been booked to host me, have been able to stay open, and it's going well. I've done a few dates, I've got many more in the diary, and it looks like they're all going to happen. So, so far, so good on that front. Fantastic. So I've got a few of these little vignettes, and uh, I've got a story here to kick off concerning Fleetwood Mac. Mm. You want to go in with Fleetwood Mac? Absolutely. Okay. So this band has been around forever, really, you know, since the 1960s. And they've had about 15 different lineups. The main crux of this story that I've got is to question the often repeated claim that this group is in some way cursed with misfortune, mm. because there's been a lot of it throughout their history. And to question whether dark energetic influences or witchcraft, sorcery, might have played a part. So one of the founding members who gives the band its name, Mick Fleetwood, the drummer, reportedly is a fan of holding seances in hotel rooms where the band perform. And he's said to have picked up the habit from Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, who died in mysterious circumstances at the age of 27 back in 1969. Brian Jones was very much into the world of the occult. Part of that group, Fleetwood Mac, for many years, was Peter Green, real name Peter Greenbaum, and he was one of the founding members alongside Fleetwood. And like Eric Clapton, who we mentioned earlier, and Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, he's revered as one of the all-time guitar greats. You know, his name often comes up in these kind of lists. Right. So Peter Green passed away in the middle of the COVID nonsense, age 73, on the 25th of July, 2020. And, uh, there was a tribute concert that had taken place just a few months before his death on the 25th of February, just before the UK got plunged into lockdown. Peter Green didn't attend this tribute. He chose not to, stayed at home, but a vast array of musicians came out to pay tribute to him, including Dave Gilmore, Noel Gallagher, John Mayle, Pete Townsend, Christine McVie, Bill Wyman and Stephen Tyler. Mm. Now, the very interesting aspect of Peter Green is that he seems to have been subject to mind control experimentation. So he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. He spent long periods in psychiatric hospitals undergoing electroconvulsive therapy, which is reported to be used in MK Ultra style mind control experimentation during the mid-1970s, and friends commented that he seemed to be in an almost continual trance. There's a story 
if I can just pull it up here, concerning the guitarist Danny Kerwan, real mm. name Daniel Langren, who was also a part of Fleetwood Mac. Now, he right. died in 2018 following long periods of being homeless and destitute. And just like Peter Green, he'd suffered mental health decline during a long period of alcohol and drug use. And this all seems to stem back to a particular incident in March 1970 at a hippie commune in Munich, where these two were in attendance. And both of them suffered their mental health declines immediately after this event, where they're said to have taken LSD. Mm. But some sources dispute the claim that Kerwan was even present. And this puts me in mind of the story concerning Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd. Mm. The official law within rock music circles is that Sid Barrett went a bit crazy through taking too much LSD. He basically fried his brains. Right. But I feel there's more to this story. And I feel that Sid Barrett was subject to MKUltra mind control public. Uh, uh, programming which right. is absolutely everywhere in the music industry and has been since its very inception so i think what we've got with aspects of fleetwood mac is another illustration of that so many band members of so many well-known groups seem to get exposed to this kind of programming to yeah. keep them on track to make sure they don't go off script you know to make sure they stay with the program so that that group can continue to push its agendas. And a group like Fleetwood Mac, you just don't get 50 plus years of fame unless you're down with the program, you know. And we're one um, of the biggest groups ever in, in the history of music. Well, exactly. Right. We've got the theme of witchcraft, which emerged early through the Fleetwood Mac favorite song, Black Magic Woman, mm. which was later made a hit by Santana. So this was written by Peter Green, I did oh, not know that. All right. Yeah, yeah. When Stevie Nicks joined the group, she took to end in the live versions of the song with the line, and you'll never get the devil out of me. Mm. So Stevie Nicks joined the group alongside Lindsay Buckingham in the 70s as part of one of the major uh, lineup changes. And Lindsay Buckingham was axed from the group after a falling out with Stevie Nicks citing various professional and legal disputes. Then Buckingham filed a lawsuit against the band. Within a few weeks, he was complaining of severe chest pains and he was taken to hospital where he underwent open heart surgery. Go figure. And this left a lot of damage to his vocal cords, calling into question whether he'd be ever able to sing professionally again. Mm. You've got three former members of Fleetwood Mac who were all named Bob, Welch, Weston and Brunning. And all of them died within eight months of each other in 2011 and 2012. And all are said to have upset the hierarchy of the band in some way. So Welch is said to have shot himself after undergoing spinal surgery and learning from his doctor that he'd never recover the use of his legs. Weston was found dead in bed in his flat after seemingly suffering a hemorrhage. And he'd been sacked following rumours of his having an affair with Jenny Boyd the wife of Mick Fleetwood, and Brunning suffered a massive heart attack at his home. Finally, you've got Jeremy Spencer, who was another original member of that group, and he also exhibited something of a schizophrenic personality during his time with the band. So offstage, he was a quiet, studious Christian, often found reading the, the Bible, 
And yet on stage, he seemed to take on an entirely different persona as a wild and flamboyant entertainer. This is something we've seen so many times where mm-hmm. artists have talked of when they get into performance mode on stage, something seems to take them over. They say they don't know where it comes from, but they just seem to be animated by some outside force. So Spencer walked out of the group after an earthquake hit Los Angeles, predicting that something bad was going to happen. And he was next heard of when he popped up as a member of a sex cult called Children of God. And this is the same group which was once headed by the disgraced former truth movement personality Zen Gardner, who many people might remember. The organization's been plagued with claims of pedophilia, and it later renamed itself The Family International. It smacks Mm. of being a mind-controlled cult. Right. Spencer is reportedly still associated with it. And finally, the son of Peter Green, a guy by the name of Liam Furledge, has started making videos addressing many of the above subjects and questioning what really happened to his father. And he's posting on YouTube. So there's a few interesting little aspects of Fleetwood Mac for you there, mate. And uh, I'll see what feedback you've got to that. Well, that's incredible. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan, you know. Um, but mostly, you know, Stevie Nicks and and uh, uh, Buckingham, right? That lineup. That's the most famous lineup. If if you ask me, I think, right? I I don't think that's disputed. Right. But uh, s- s- some of those. Um, I mean, I don't want to say coincidences, right? Like so, so, some of that, some of that, uh, of that stuff that you just dropped on us, man. It's it's like. It's hard to ignore, right? You you need you want to look into that and see what the hell's going on because it's too I don't know. I mean, to call it a coincidence, it's it's just I don't know. Maybe just rub uh, shrugging it off just a little bit. You understand what I'm saying, Mark? Right, right, yeah. I mean, to me, that group and so many of those aspects that I just related just tick so many boxes that I've seen with so many other groups. And there comes a point where it goes beyond coincidence and just one of those things, and it starts to become a pattern and right. a trend. A mature, higher mind would see it that way anyway. Right. I'm like, you know, the, there's there's definitely something there that that uh, that uh, begs to be looked at just a little bit more, right? So uh, and I would encourage I everybody to do just that, and that's what Mark Devlin does. Give us a couple more, Mark, in the interest of time. Sure. So the police sting. Let's go uh, in with that. You, you had to do it, right? You had to destroy of everything that I love, right? That rage against the machine destroyed itself for me. And now you're going to destroy the police. Course, Thank man. you very much. That's what I do. <laughs> My job. So I've exposed the true nature of the police many times before. Right. They're a CIA creation, basically, under this dude, Miles Copeland Sr., who was a longtime CIA asset. He had three sons who he put to use in the music industry. The Copeland brothers, Ian Copeland, Miles Copeland Jr., and Stuart Copeland, best known as the drummer with the police. But the real driving force behind that band was Miles Copeland Jr., the eldest son of that CIA agent. And he's said to have had a very controlling effect on the entire punk and new wave movement of the late 70s going into the 80s. And the police was kind of the flagship band for that whole dynamic. Anyway, in the book, I'm focusing on a claim that was made by Dave Wakeling, who was the former singer with the new wave and ska group, The Beat. They came out of that two-tone scene Mm. alongside the specials and Madness and the Selector and those kind of names. They were contemporaries of the police. And these two groups toured together in the early 1980s. So Wakeling gave some comments to the Insider website, a sister project to Entertainment Tonight, 
And he mentioned that Sting and his fellow band members were kept on an incredibly short leash by Miles Copeland. And uh, Wakeling said, touring with the police was an odd situation. They were ruled by fear by Miles Copeland. They were not allowed to speak their minds. They were heavily contained and we felt very sad for them, really, because they did have ideas and opinions that they were banned from being able to say. It was really the monkeys of punk. We're mm. too busy singing to sing about anything that's really going on. And it was awful sad because there were decent blokes, especially Gordon. That's Gordon Sumner, who's the, Sting. That's the real name of Sting. Right. They sort of eviscerated the end of punk, didn't they? To make it like it was pure pop entertainment, which was a bloody shame. And they got away with it, which is even worse. So this just, this just speaks to them being a created band. Yeah. And there's the hint at some frustration there on the part specifically of Sting to really make some statements and uh, say some things that were on his mind, but not being allowed to do so because of the true nature of the band of which he was a part. And I've mentioned the double meaning of Sting's moniker because every aspect of the police and the Copelands just seemed to be mocking the general public and placing the truth of what that band was all about right there in plain sight. So you had Copeland International Artists, which of course stands for CIA. <laughs> so they're telling you right there. And they had Frontier Booking International, FBI. They had International Record Syndicate, the IRS, all different aspects of government. Damn. You know, Right, right. <laughs> and, and then you've got the name of the group, the police, suggesting that that group was there to kind of monitor what was going on on that scene and just be in control of things. And then you've got the name of Sting himself. You know, what's a Sting operation, right? Right. And the very unconvincing story of this origin is that Gordon Sumner used to wear a yellow and black striped jumper, which made him look like a bumblebee. And that's how he picked up the name Sting. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm convinced. <laughs> Sounds plausible <laughs> to me. Now, I'll just leave you with one last aspect of the police which right. somebody brought to my attention. The three members of this group were previously in a short-lived band named, wait for it, Strontium 90. Wow, I didn't know this. Go ahead. Yeah, and Strontium has been identified as one of the nanoparticle constituents present in chemtrails. I don't need to tell your audience what chemtrails are all about. I'm sure right. they know. So Strontium 90, interesting name, right? Damn, they're all wrapped up in it. <laughs> you know, like incredible, incredible. You know, I'm a I'm a huge fan of the police. I don't think they have a bad album. There's five of them. And I right. think they're all great. Like, I mean, from top to bottom, it's incredible music, right? And and um Stuart Copeland is one of the greatest drummers of all time in my book, you know. And 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 to to your point about Sting, uh, Mr. Gordon Sumner, um, if he had anything to say you know, that was next level. They certainly paid him well. He has, you know, he, over 300 or $400 million is his, his, his net worth, maybe more than that. Um, he has a castle that, that he lives out of over there. You know, like, I mean, the guy is paid. So if he was ever going to say something, they, they, they shut that up real quick. I mean, the, he's an incredible musician, so I'm not saying he didn't earn his money, but damn, the guy is paid. So uh, to hurt the bottom line, I don't know if he wanted to go out there and and do that and that's what that's what they do with a, with a lot of people right like uh people um lose their edge and not that sting was ever really edgy but uh but but uh, people lose their edge when they get paid tons and tons of money and they're making you know a, a ridiculous living it takes them to a different 
a different stage of life and they're not willing to do the things that they were willing to do when they were broke, you know, and, and that's, that's a part of it. I think that's a part of, uh, of, uh, you know, how people are control, uh, have a controlled narrative, how people are, 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 you know, funneled into one direction to speak in a particular way. Go ahead, sir. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. You want to get on to the next one? Give me one more. Go ahead. Okay. So in the book, I'm talking about soul music, that genre, and so many vocalists from that scene who died in tragic circumstances at ridiculously young ages. So I've listed them. You know, there's many in their 20s, like Tammy Terrell and yeah. Aaliyah, who didn't live beyond 22. And then, you know, many of them in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s even. These these ages are too young to die. And I'm focusing specifically on the story of Donny Hathaway within those confines. So the official line on Donny Hathaway is that he committed suicide on the 13th of January 1979. He's said to have jumped from the 15th floor balcony of his New York hotel room. He was 33 years old. And his suicide is said to have occurred following severe bouts of depression and erratic behavior. So to my thinking, we're right back into the world of trauma-based mind control programming once again. Uh, let me just pull up some stuff about the venue uh, where he died, New York's Essex House Hotel. So he's said to have leapt to his death from his room in this particular building. This is on an adjacent side of Central Park to the Dakota building where the movie Rosemary's Baby was set and outside which John Lennon was assassinated. You might even know the Essex Hotel, mate. Are you familiar yeah. with it? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I know it. Okay. I'm not far from, well, I, I'm in the Bronx, but if, if you know, in, sure. don't, I've, I've, I've passed by it many times. Go ahead. Well, it's said to be a CIA safe house, according mm. to certain researchers. Uh, any visiting CIA and government officials in New York usually end up staying at Essex House Hotel. It's that right. kind of venue. In the movie Rosemary's Baby, which took place in the Dakota building just across Central Park there, early on in the narrative, you've got a young woman who falls to her death from one of the windows in suspicious circumstances. Now, investigators found that the glass from Donny Hathaway's hotel window had been carefully removed. It's a very specialist operation. It had been placed on the bed. Someone who's tired of life doesn't go to that meticulous level of workmanship. Right. Uh, so the Essex House Hotel was owned by hoteling tycoon J. Willard Marriott. He himself is extremely well connected to the CIA and other government departments. According to the musician and producer Reggie Lucas, who was present at Hathaway's final recording session with James M. Toomey, Hathaway was accompanied everywhere by David McCoy Franklin, who was an attorney with political connections employed by Hathaway's record label Atlantic. He may also have been a handler. And Lucas has said that Hathaway appeared heavily drugged on the evening of his death. Many people that knew Donny Hathaway have said that he would never have taken his own life. They question how a man who can make such profound songs as Thank You Master for My Soul and was clearly a man of faith, would elect to end his own life in that way. So the suspicion is that he was, of course, murdered, along with so many other musicians. Right. Another story I've got in the book focuses on 
a trio of very well-known soul singers, James Brown, Otis Redding, and Sam Cooke. And just very quickly, back in the 1960s, these three are said to have joined forces in an attempt to start up a music publishing company, which would see them gain ownership of their own songs and be in charge of their uh, publishing royalties and their master recording tapes. The industry machine doesn't think much of musicians that try and break free of their shackles and do things on their own terms, and it doesn't usually end well for the musicians concerned, and it certainly didn't for these. So Sam Cooke died in December 1964 in a motel shooting. Right. The story is that he was out partying earlier that night in a restaurant, met this girl, went back to a motel with her. The girl claimed that Sam Cooke tried to rape her, and that in her panic, she scooped up a load of clothing, her clothing and some of Sam Cooke's clothing in the process, went running down the motel corridor into the manager's office and banged on the door till the manager opened. Sam Cooke ran down the corridor after her, got to the manager's office, and the manageress on night duty shot him in the torso. Mm-hmm. And she claimed it was in self-defence. There are many discrepancies with this story. The singer Etta James, who was a friend of Sam Cooke, has expressed doubt over what was claimed because she said his body was so badly beaten and mutilated that it doesn't tally with what the manageress had said. So, you know, the implication there is that he was murdered. Then you got Otis Redding, who died in a plane crash. And this was in December 1967. So this was three years after Sam Cooke. And... uh, let me just remind myself of the ages. Yes, yeah, Sam Cooke was 33, mm. like Donny Hathaway, when he died. <laughs> Otis Redding was 26 when he died. And this was just a few days after he recorded his most famous song, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. A few wow. days after that, he was dead. And many people feel that that was the industry controller's way of getting rid of two thorns in the side. They left James Brown alive. And James Brown went on to put in decades more faithful service to the industry. James Brown is the most sampled artist in hip-hop history, as you probably know. You know, there was a spate in the 80s where James Brown's back catalogue was absolutely plundered by hip-hop producers. And they nicked all his beats and stuff and drum loops and built hip-hop tracks around him. He was known as the hardest working man in show business. And that's probably because his owners were kicking his ass so much to keep on churning out product and keep going on tour. But anyway, it seems that James Brown had outlived his usefulness by Christmas Day 2006 when he died in hospital. And this was 10 years to the day before George Michael died, Christmas Day 2016. James Brown's son, Daryl, has done quite a few interviews and he did a documentary with Sean Stone the son of the filmmaker Oliver Stone, talking about uh, his dad's work. And Daryl Brown is of the view that his father was murdered wow. by the forces wow. that control the industry. And he's come right out and said this. Mm-hmm. And then there are doctors who examined James Brown uh, after he died, and they've said that the state that his body was in suggests that he was poisoned, systematically poisoned. 
I mean, there's a lot, lots more to this as well. I don't know how deeply you want to go into it, but that's uh, incredible, brother. Like, I mean, I I didn't know this about James Brown, you know, um, that people were questioning how he died, which is crazy. You know, um, the hardest working man in show business he was. Right, I never got to see him live. Um, towards towards the tail end of 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 his life is when I was able to go to shows, but he came around here in New York a few times, and I just never, I just never went. Hmm. Um. But it's incredibly interesting, and 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 a guy like James Brown is is um is held up as a, as a civil rights icon in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you think that um, they allowed him to do that? His handlers, if he had any, they allowed him to do that for whatever reason. You think they allowed him to be the face of uh, of uh, <clears throat> of uh, of the civil rights um a movement for a bit? Like you know, I'm black and I'm proud. Of those uh those songs still resonate today for a lot of people. Right. Well, I mean, why do you think they let them put out stuff like that? Yeah. There are social engineering agendas everywhere. Right. I mean, the whole black lives matter thing mm-hmm. is an agenda. Not to say that it doesn't have noble aims, at least on the surface, but when you get down to who runs that movement and what it's really designed for, it's an agenda. Right. And so that whole civil rights thing would have been controlled as well, a controlled narrative. There's a very interesting thing regarding James Brown in terms of a commercial that he did for BMW Mm -hmm. in 2002, directed by Tony Scott, who's the brother of the film director Ridley Scott. And it talks about this legend of the crossroads, which Daryl Brown, James's son, as, Mm -hmm. as referenced as well, the fable of the crossroads connected to the blues musician Robert Johnson, who was the original member of the 27 Club. He turned up dead in very suspicious circumstances at the age of 27. But there was always this legend within the blues industry that Robert Johnson had sold his soul to the devil for fame and fortune. And so this whole idea of the crossroads cropped up in this BMW commercial. So you have a young James Brown and he's seen in a remote desert at a crossroads. And the caption says that this is November 1954 when James was 21 and he supposedly made his deal with the industry. And you've got modern day James's voiceover. So in 2002, James Brown actually voiced this ad and he says in his own voice, I traded sunrise for sunset. That's what I did. If I knew then what I know now, nah. Darkness is death's ignorance and the devil's time. And then you see the ad fast forwarding to November 2002 and an aging James Brown is taken by his driver, played by the actor Clive Owen, to a hotel named The Crossroads. And he attends a meeting with the Prince of Darkness or the devil, who's played by the actor Gary Oldman. And James tells the devil, I want to renegotiate my contract. And the devil replies, our deal was your soul for fame and fortune didn't I deliver? And James says, yeah, but the aging process, we didn't address it. I can't do the splits anymore. Our original deal no longer stands. And James then proposes a new deal, which is another soul offered to the devil for another 50 years. And he offers up his driver, played by Clive Owen. And you then see the devil uh, and his driver taking on James Brown and Clive Owen in a drag race through the desert and the devil's car ends up going up in flames and uh you know james and his driver are the winners 
But then at the end of the ad, the devil is seen to have survived and he gets a visit from the dark occultist and Church of Satan member, Marilyn Manson. <sighs> and the devil says, <laughs> he spooks me out. <laughs> and then 10 years after directing that short film, Tony Scott, brother of Ridley, dies of an apparent suicide after jumping from a bridge in North Los Angeles. Wow. And then when James Brown turned up dead in hospital on Christmas Day 2006, there was actually a campaign to get his death looked into because many, many people just weren't accepting the official verdict that he died of uh, heart failure or whatever the official story was. So among those to have alleged that James Brown was murdered were his friend, the Reverend L. Sharpton, James Brown's fourth wife, he got around a bit, Tommy Ray, <laughs> his manager, Frank Copsidas, and his daughter, LaRonda Pettit, and son-in-law, Darren Lumar, both of whom have since died. Wow. LaRonda made the claim that her father's body, James, had gone missing from the crypt where it was being held in order to prevent any opportunity for a post-mortem to prove he was murdered. James Brown's son-in-law, Darren Chip Lumar, told CBS 46 News that James Brown had been murdered. And in 2008, Lumar himself was shot dead in the garage of his Atlanta home. Police said they suspected it to be a contract killing. And then uh, you've got Charles Bobbitt, who was the longtime friend and personal manager of James Brown, was reportedly at his bedside when he died. Michael Jackson is said to have remained there for two hours afterwards. James Brown had been something of a father figure mentor to Michael Jackson. And uh, Michael said he learned many of his famous dance steps from James Brown. Right, right. So, yeah, he saw him very much as a, a father figure. Uh, as I said, James Brown died exactly 10 years before George Michael. And George Michael's birthday was the 25th of June, the date on which Michael Jackson turned up dead in 2009. Jesus wow. <laughs> These connections just never end. <laughs> That is incredible. Incredible, Mark. I want to ask you one more thing before we get out of here. Mm. This is a little bit off top. It's not off topic. It's up your alley. But I don't know if you covered it at all. Um, this whole Astral World uh, debacle that happened here in the United States with Travis right. Scott mm. and uh, people calling it a ritualistic sacrifice, you know, and all this other stuff that went down there. There was a, certainly a lot of uh, occult and, and uh, dark imagery around uh, the festival what are your thoughts on it do you have any have you followed it well i believe it was an energy harvesting dark occult ritual it's mm. not the first time we've seen this you know right. uh, with most of the grammys and the super bowl halftime show and the mtv vmas even the eurovision song contest now we can see that these are massive dark occult rituals right. even aspects of the mainstream have been commenting on it you know there was that year I think it might have been 2012 or thereabouts when Nicki Minaj came on stage with uh, a guy dressed as the Pope and there was all kinds of blasphemous religious imagery. I think that was the year Madonna performed as well. and She came right. down the, the steps there in that famous performance. And there were aspects of mainstream entertainment sites that were saying, did we just witness an actual satanic ritual taking place right there in front of millions of people? Mm -hmm. Yes, you did. <laughs> and it's just another day in the office for the sick, twisted machine that is the entertainment industry. Right. So the Astro World event 
put me in mind of a few other rock concerts where members of the audience died during the performance. One obvious one for me is the Rolling Stones at Eltamont in December 1969, where there was this young guy, Meredith Hunter, who got stabbed to death in front of the stage by Hell's Angels, who'd been hired to do the security for that event. So, yeah, great decision there. Mm. And three other people died at that event as well in different circumstances. Then you had The Who's performance in Cincinnati, where there was a big crush in the audience and several members died. The same thing happened or similar thing happened with Pearl Jam at the Roskilde Festival. I, rem- in I remember, right. Mm-hmm. Right. And now you've got this Travis Scott Astro World event where several members of the crowd are said to have died. And there's differing reports, you know, in some they were supposedly pushed and crushed in a big skirmish. And then in other accounts, there was drug abuse involved. You know, some people claim it could have been a reaction to the vaccines because everyone had to be jabbed to get in there. There's all different opinions as to what happened. Uh, It's all very sinister. And the performances of the artists involved were very sinister as well. All kinds of dark occult imagery was on display. Travis Scott himself seemed to be in some sort of mind-controlled trance. He just started mumbling incoherently while all this was going on you got all this suspect imagery in the background and another element of that event for me which is very strange is that that very weekend that all this was going on at astro world a former member of the british reggae group ub40 turned up dead you know his name no i don't astro <laughs> really he was known as this Astro. is re- this is too much you know huh? like I, it, it's just crazy right if i i, I just I, what can you say to something like that good lord go ahead i know, right, I, know right. I mean he was 62 yeah. and he's said to have been in poor health uh, but you know what are the chances of an artist who goes by the name of astro turning up dead the very same weekend as all this is going on at an event in houston called Astro World. Mm. Very, very slim in terms of regular odds, I would suggest. Sounds like a glitch in the matrix, Mark. Yeah, yeah. And and again, you know, one or two of these events you could possibly write off as wild coincidences. But we're not talking about one or two events, are we? We're talking about decades and decades worth of example after example of all these strange things. I mean, even that story I just told you about James Brown and all these dates, birth dates and such. So many synchronicities there. One of the other stories that I'm doing on this speaking tour that I'm doing involves the movie Rosemary's Baby and the Beatles Mm. and the connections and the crossovers between that movie and that group. I mean, I could be there for hours listening. Why don't we do that, Mark? Let's do do a show on that. That sounds incredibly interesting. We should. Just that. We could fill a whole show with that, brother. I know we can. <laughs> I want to do that. Um, and um, of course, we're, we're we're about to wrap up, but but it wouldn't be a show without Mark with Mark Devlin if I didn't ask about Paul McCartney. And I know you get oh, asked Lord. about Paul McCartney all the time, but I am not going to be the one to stop that trend. I want to know because I know you change it from week to week, from month to month, from day to day. You know, you, you your your uh, your outlook on this thing. You know, your opinion on uh, whether or not Paul McCartney is dead. So what are you feeling right now? 
I asked you this on on your anniversary show. I want to know if it's different now. Go ahead. I know, man. I can't remember what I gave as a response back then, but I was probably in the same place then as I am now with Paul McCartney. And he's been a famous name who has been vocal about the whole COVID thing, but of course he's been propping it up. And he's made comments like, uh, wear your masks, stay indoors, do what the government tells you. Uh, He doesn't believe that forcing people to wear masks is taking away their individual rights and liberties. Of course he would say that. Look at his Mm -hmm. career. 60 odd years of fame, if it's the same guy. And uh, you don't get that kind of career unless you're playing ball with those that handed it to you and facilitated it for you. And that's the biggest the biggest name in, in music. Well, arguably, yeah. And he's a sir, of course. And right. we were talking earlier about the effect of famous names coming out and uh, saying something, making meaningful statements that are truthful and that challenge the official narrative. Can you imagine if Paul McCartney came out and publicly stated that COVID is a scam, mm. it's a genocidal agenda in line with eugenicists who wish to reduce the human population by significant numbers. If he exposed Bill Gates as a psychopath and a eugenicist, Anthony Fauci as a liar. If he exposed the vaccine agenda as killing people, right. which is what's going on. Can you imagine the effect of that? It would be a game changer. Just that one man, one individual coming out and making those statements. There goes the agenda. Finished overnight, dead, buried, never to return. And all those who perpetrated it would stand fully exposed for their crimes for all to see. He could shut down the game overnight with that level of fame. But of course he doesn't. And neither does Mick Jagger. And neither does Elton John. And neither does Rod Stewart. Neither does Bob Dylan. None of them. Because they know what would happen to him. Right. And it's a condition of these long careers that they don't say anything that rocks the boat. Approved statements only. And we've had a great example of that over these past few years. Two years for anyone that ever doubted that dynamic. But to get back to the McCartney thing, my standpoint is that there has been more than one individual put out there publicly as Paul McCartney. Now, does that mean that the original Paul McCartney died in 1966 or at any other point? Not necessarily. Right. What we could have is a scenario where the present day individual known as Paul McCartney is in fact the original biological Paul McCartney. But he's not been the only one we've seen. Oh, wow. Switcheroo all the time. Yeah, exactly. It's my personal view that there was a period in the 1960s where they consistently used a second individual who they paraded as Paul McCartney. What we may have, not saying this is definitely the case, but we may have a scenario where a lot of researchers have got it twisted And they thought that that replacement that we saw frequently in the 1960s was the original Paul. So that when the real original Paul comes back around, they think, oh, this guy's an imposter. This isn't the same individual at all. But what if that is the original guy and the one that everyone thinks is the original is the imposter? You know, it's mind games. It's switcheroo, as you say, but they love to do this to us. They have psychologists and behavioral scientists and anthropologists and dark occult sorcerers who know how to manipulate the human psyche and play these kind of games on us 
and confuse us and tie us up in knots. They love it. They love mocking our profanity and our ignorance as they see it by playing these games with us. And in my view, they've been playing it with Paul McCartney for a very long time. But really, the only thing I can take away from all of this is the only definitive statement I can make is there's been more than one Paul McCartney playing that public role. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. If you had any doubt, now now you know where to go look and and you know what to examine. Hey, it's been an incredible incredible, uh, time with you here, Mark Devlin. Thank you for coming. And uh, your new book, sir, let everybody know where they can get it. Sure. Well, Musical Truth 3 is available on Amazon. If anyone wants to get it that way, quick and easy. It's also on Barnes & Noble. But for anyone that wants to get it from me, Individually, directly, I can send out signed copies. What I would say is that for your American audience, it is rather expensive to post to the United States or Canada, unfortunately, because of the postage companies and the courier companies hiking up their costs during COVID. So it's going to be far cheaper to get it from Amazon. But for anyone who is prepared to pay for it for a signed copy, I'm happy to mail one out. It's in paperback version and hardback version. It's also in Kindle ebook format for people that like their books that way. I am going to record an audiobook version, but that's going to be several months down the line, just being honest about it, because these things take so much time and I have so little of it that it is going to be many months before I get that done. But at some point I will. I'll voice that version of it. So people need to drop me an email if they want to get hold of it to markdevlinuk at gmail.com. And you can get my previous books from me the same way as well, volumes one and two, and also The Cause and the Cure. For anyone listening in England, I'm doing a a tour. As I mentioned, I've got several dates in the diary where I'm presenting aspects of the soundbite section of that book at a few conferences and meetup events and such. And I would love to get back to doing that internationally. I would love to be able to jump on a plane and come out and see you, brother and do another event out there in New York or elsewhere in the States. I wonder if those days will ever return. What do you think? Um, They'll return, but I I, I don't know when. And uh, they'll return quicker outside of New York than in New York. New York right, is right. Uh, is something else altogether, but we don't have to do it here. We can do it somewhere else. Plus, that was the plan. Uh, I was trying to do D.C., but now D.C. has turned into New York, so that's out of the question. Oh, um, I don't Come know. Maybe strongholds. Right. Maybe we'll do, uh, maybe we'll do Florida. Right. Um, I love it down there anyway. So, um, I mean, the only circumstances in which I'll ever get on an airplane again is when all this bullshit is gone. You know, no masks, no tests, no quarantine, no jabs, none of that. It's the only way I'll do it. So if that means I have to spend the rest of my days on British shores, then that's the way it will be. But I don't believe it's going to turn out that way. I believe we are collectively going to turn this situation around, put this madness down, put this injustice down and hold those who have made our lives misery for the last two years fully to account. That's how I feel about it. Well, you know, I I, I admire your optimism, brother. I, I, I wish... I hope <clears throat> that that you are right. I hope that you are as as right as can be, because um, I want to be done with all this bullcrap too. Um, I want you to maybe, share my optimism. Well, just just the picture where I'm at and what I'm seeing, and um, that's why I'm not quite there yet. You know, all right, all um, right. but but uh, but I mean, there is hope. There are people pushing back here in New York. There are there's a large number of people that don't um, 
don't subscribe to the nonsense. And and there's a large number of people that um, went ahead and got jabbed, but they only went ahead and got jabbed because they were bullied into it and they recognized that. And, and um, that's a victory for us because they recognize that, that, um, that they are not in, in, uh, in direct control of their own bodies. You know, they, they, they recognize it now. There's a lot of people. A lot of people and, they've, uh, and played, they've been duped and they can come over to our side anytime they wish and, and, they're co- and a lot of them are coming now and that's the thing you know that's the, that's uh that's what gives me hope overall i'm just a little bit slower than you but i'm, I'm trying to catch up mark devlin the, the the amazing mark devlin ladies and gentlemen needs no introduction you guys know the deal this is the infinite fringe um my name is billy ray valentine billy the kid make sure you subscribe to everything that's going down you know the deal you know where to find me Guys, take it easy, okay? Don't burn the place down while I'm gone. Bye-bye.